Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are looking at the crucifixion of Jesus as told in John chapter 19. And this episode is entitled The Cross and the Pandemic. We read about the crucifixion of Jesus as told in John chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but instead this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Whenever we talk about crucifixion, we must talk about the cruelty of this institution. The cross was a torture device designed to keep the victim alive as long as possible while inflicting the maximum amount of pain. But while there was physical pain for the person nailed to the cross, there was also a second meaning behind this form of capital punishment. To talk about that, I'd like to turn to the work of New Testament scholar Paula Fredrickson, who in her book, Jesus of Nazareth, she writes about what crucifixion meant to the people who saw crucifixion. Here are her words. Crucifixion was a Roman form of public service announcement. Do not engage in sedition or rebellion as this person has, or your fate will be similar. 
The point of the exercise was not the death of the offender as such, but getting the attention of those watching. Crucifixion, first and foremost, is addressed to an audience. This is one reason why crucifixion happens above the ground. The idea was that the Romans wanted to place the victim as high as possible so that everyone around could see this person in agony, writhing, and pain to let them know that they best not cross the empire or this will happen to them. So you have a tortuous, brutal, and violent death compounded by shame, suffering, and support of an empire. And when we look at all of these things and the story that we just read in John chapter 19, it can be overwhelming and theologically troubling. The reason for this is because Christians believe and profess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And here, the Son of God is the recipient of one of the most heinous deaths that humanity has to offer. So much so that if Jesus Christ walked among us today and was found guilty by the state and worthy of the death penalty, there is no state in all 50 states that would allow a crucifixion to happen. Every state has deemed that this is too much of an evil form of punishment and we will not lower our standards to crucify someone. But here we have a story about the Son of God being crucified. And it's so violent, and it's so shameful, and it's so horrific that Christians everywhere ask the question, why did Jesus Christ have to die this way? Why did Jesus Christ have to endure so much suffering? Why did Jesus Christ have to endure torture? Why did Jesus Christ have to die on a cross? And what does this death mean in the grand scheme of the cosmos? Anytime we ask this question, we are engaging in the theological idea of atonement. Now, atonement can be found in the New Oxford American Dictionary, and there is a specific definition as it applies to Christian theology. The definition of atonement is the reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus Christ. And the way that most Christians understand the world and their relationship with God is that we are here on earth and God is up there or out there somewhere, and there is a gap or a distance or a space between God and us. And most Christians believe that the cross, the death of Jesus, and the torture and the pain that he endured 2,000 years ago while he died somehow, some way atones for the distance between God and us and brings us closer to God. But how is it that torture of a human being brings us closer to God? And if you can answer that question, then you can start to answer the question, why did Jesus Christ have to die this way? Now, several Christians I know have this question and ask this question frequently. But when Christians ask this question, there's a bit of embarrassment that comes with this question because so many Christians feel like they should be able to have the answer. But when you look closely at church history, 
you realize that this has been a discussion for a very long time. So I'd like for us to take a deep dive into church history in the middle of a pandemic to attempt to answer the question, why did Jesus Christ have to die this way? So let's go back 2,000 years ago, right after Jesus died, when people were coming to terms with the idea of a crucified God. When the Christian church began, there were a lot of little churches scattered throughout the landscape. And these churches were very insular, and they would be visited by traveling preachers or traveling prophets that would talk to them about what it went to be a Christian in the first century. Now, these churches would grow up and develop and start to understand what theology was, and they would start to value the writings and teachings of people who had gone before them because this is how they shared ideas. One of these preachers that was traveling was a man named Paul, who was one of the early founders of the church. You can read about his story in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders and he is telling them, keep watch and shepherd the church of God that God obtained with the blood of his own son. Now, these are nice words, but a question arose, obtained from who? Paul also writes in a letter to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, he writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Well, if God wants to set us free, what is it that we are currently bound to? Then we turn to the unknown author of Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, the unknown author writes, And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, this is an interesting idea, but the question must be asked, an offering to who? And the answer for the first 1,000 years of church history was an offering to the devil. Yes, the devil. Because the dominant narrative in Christian theology for the first 1,000 years of our church's history was that the devil owned humanity. Now, let me tell you about this dominant narrative because it went something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the center of God's creation was the Garden of Eden. Now, God created man and woman and placed them in the garden and told them to eat from the tree of life and to refuse to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, after some time, the man and the woman took a bite of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fell from the grace of God into the possession of the devil. From then on, the devil possessed all of humanity. But God did not give up on all of humanity. God instituted a sacrificial system, first through the tabernacle and then later the temple, in which people could be forgiven of their sins and ward off the possession of the devil. Into that context, there were prophets who were born, and prophets began to predict the life of Jesus Christ, who would come and be the Son of God and be the ultimate sacrifice to the devil and free all of humanity from its bondage. You may hear all of this story and say, well, that's great. 
Jesus Christ died for our sins, so that way we are now all the property of God. And a first millennia Christian theologian would have said, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Jesus Christ purchased all of us back, but ultimately the devil still holds possession of us unless we believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. So in other words, for the first 1,000 years, Christian theologians that believe that Jesus Christ only purchased back some of humanity from the devil, but the majority stayed in the possession of the devil. Now, this whole narrative can be summed up in the title, The Penal Substitution Atonement Theory. I understand that's a really big, bulky theological term, but this is what it basically is. It's the theological idea that Adam and Eve's sin predestined all of us to be property of the devil. However, Jesus Christ died for our predestined sins. And if you or I accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, then he will act as a substitute for the devil's ransom and subsequently free us from the bondage of that devil. That was the dominant narrative for our church's history for the first 1,000 years. And if you're thinking to yourself, there are some logical problems with the penal substitution atonement theory, I would say that you're not alone. Because a 1,000 years after these ideas were born, along came a man from Canterbury, which is in modern-day England, and this man's name was Anselm. Anselm is a church theologian who lived from 1033 to 1109 CE. And his masterwork is the book Cure Deus Homo, which was released in 1098. Cure Deus Homo translates to why God became a man. And Anselm looked at this penal substitution atonement theory and thought, there's some truth here, but there's one major problem at the logical center of this idea. It makes the devil too powerful. In this story, the devil owns all of humanity and God has to go back and purchase them from the devil. The devil's on equal footing with God and that simply cannot be the case. So in the book, Cure Deus Homo, Anselm challenged the idea that Jesus had to die on the cross to pay a debt to the devil. Instead, he wrote about how Jesus Christ had to die on the cross to pay off a debt to God. Yes, a debt to God. In Cure Deus Homo, Anselm retells the story of human history. And he talks about how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, in the center of the earth was this garden of Eden and God placed man and woman in the garden. They rebelled against God by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this enraged God. God was so angry that God wanted to murder Adam and Eve and other people. And as the story of Genesis unfolds, sure enough, God murders every human being on the planet, except for eight people in the great and terrible flood. Now, we would assume that this mass genocide would somehow quell the anger of God, but God is still angry in Anselm's story. God is so angry that God introduces a sacrificial system, first at the tabernacle, later at the temple, and God derives pleasure 
from the death and violence toward animals. And when they are on the altar, there is this pleasing odor that God derives pleasure from. And in the midst of all of this sacrificial system, prophets come in and they begin to tell about how angry God is, but God will soon send God's only son. And when this son walks among us, this son will be offered up as a sacrifice on an altar or a cross. And it's almost like the son will stand in front of all of humanity and say, calm down, dad. Why don't you take out all of your wrath and anger on me instead of human beings? And so the reason this death had to be so violent was because it had to exemplify and give picture to how angry God was with all of humanity. And so in Cure Deus Homo, Anselm introduced an amended penal substitution atonement theory, which is a theological idea that Adam and Eve's sin predestined all of us to the full wrath of God. However, Jesus Christ died on the cross in the most brutal, violent, and horrific way possible to satisfy the penalty of God's wrath. Now, if you and I accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, then Jesus will stand in our place as substitute for God's wrath that we deserve. In other words, Anselm absolutely believed that God needs blood from us before God can love us. And while this idea may sound strange or foreign to you, I will tell you that the majority of Christians I interact with believe on some level Anselm's amended penal substitution atonement theory. The idea that God is angry with all of humanity and Jesus Christ endured so much pain and suffering to tell us how angry God is. And the only way that God can love us is that God has somehow taken all of God's anger out on God's only son. And that somehow pacified God to the point where God is now love. Well, if you feel like there's some problems at the logic of this atonement theory, I will tell you that you are not alone. Also, I will tell you that this is nothing new. Because 200 years after Anselm wrote Cure Deus Homo, a man named John Dunn Scotus from what is modern-day Scotland began to look at this atonement theory and think to himself, this doesn't add up. Not only that, but he decided to return to Scripture to see if Scripture supported this amended atonement theory. And so John Dunn Scotus began to place a lot of emphasis on the first chapter of 1 John, the first chapter of John's Gospel, the first chapter of Ephesians, the first chapter of Colossians. In those passages of Scripture, he found some rather stunning remarks. Ephesians chapter 1, which is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Verse 4, he reads the words of Paul, which says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, these were rather stunning words to John Dunn Scotus because he had always heard that God was distant, that God was out there, and there had to be some form of atonement to bring us closer to God. But here's Paul who tells us that there is no separation, that God is as near to us as our next breath. And before the foundation of the world, we were not destined to die. 
We were not destined to be the subject of God's anger. We were not destined to be property of the devil, but instead were destined to stand before God holy and blameless in love. This theme is also picked up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. And according to Paul, everything that we experience and encounter somehow, some way, mirrors and reflects the divine. In John's gospel, chapter one, we've read it a lot during this series in John because I find it to be one of the pinnacles of scripture. John wants to tell the story of what it means for God to become a human being. And in verse three of chapter one, John writes these words, all things came into being through Christ. And without Christ, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Christ was life. And the life was the light of all people. So John Dunn Scott has heard all of these atonement theories and the idea that God saw us screw up in the fall and God created a backup plan and offered Jesus Christ as God's only son. And he started thinking about it. He said, this doesn't make any sense. If Jesus Christ is the ultimate gift from God, why would we only receive that gift if we rebelled against God? That doesn't make any kind of sense. So John Scotus wrote in a paper called the Repertoria Parasinesis, which I butchered the name, but here it is. He wrote these words. He said, to think that God would have given up incarnation had Adam not sinned would be quite unreasonable. I say, therefore, that the fall was not the cause of Christ's predestination. He then goes on to say that Christ's predestination was the result of God's love. And while John Scott has heard about atonement theories where we belong to the devil, he would tell everyone that the problem with this theory is that our default mode of being is the devil's property. Even after Jesus Christ died on the cross, we're still defaulted to being the devil's property. This doesn't match what I read in John's gospel and in the letters of Paul and in John's epistle. John Scott has heard about how God was angry and that Jesus Christ somehow pacified or nullified God's anger. And he says, the problem with this theory is that God is angry, like really angry. And it suggests that God only gives us gifts if we rebel against God. Now, at this point, you may be hearing John Scottus's ideas and thinking to yourself, so what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? When Jesus died and was crucified, what is it that John Scottus thought changed in that moment. And John Dunn Scottus would respond by saying, well, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross didn't change anything. And if these ideas sound like heresy to you, John Dunn Scottus would correct you and say, the problem I have is that in your mind, there is distance between God and us. We don't need atonement if we believe that God is close to us. 
And so the work of John Dunn Scotus discarded the idea of atonement because it believed that God is present with us. And instead, John Dunn Scotus focused much more on a different word, which was incarnation. Now, according to the New Oxford American Dictionary, incarnation in Christian theology means the embodiment of God in human flesh as Jesus Christ. And this is what Scotus found to be incredibly important. Now, when people hear that Scotus says that nothing changed at Calvary, that the death of Jesus didn't change anything, most people assume that he has a very low understanding and belief structure in Jesus Christ. This couldn't be further from the truth. Instead, Scotus belongs to something that's known as the Franciscan tradition within the church. And the Franciscans are the ones who insisted that we needed to celebrate Christmas just as strongly as Easter. Because while nothing changed in the Franciscans' mind on Calvary, everything changed the moment that Jesus Christ was born. According to the Franciscans, Jesus Christ is God's ultimate expression of love. And we have overemphasized the death of Jesus rather than the life of Jesus. Now, with those three theories in mind, and specifically looking at Scotus's ideas, the question we asked at the beginning of this podcast is, why did Jesus Christ have to die this way on the cross? Well, if we trust Scotus's work, then the answer is very simply, he didn't have to die this way. God didn't become a human being to be tortured. Instead, the empire decided to kill Jesus this way. And what that ultimately reveals is that the empire of Rome does not care about peasants from Nazareth. And the empire is ultimately cruel and violent and unjust. And none of this crucifixion business was the idea of God. Instead, it was a human construct that we inflicted upon God because that is what our empire is. Now, when I start saying these things, I understand what I am saying. These ideas make people uncomfortable. And the reason these ideas make people uncomfortable is because it suggests that God lost control of the situation. If human beings dictated the way that God died, then it seems to suggest that human beings are in the driver's seat of this crucifixion. And this makes people so uncomfortable that they immediately return to Anselm's amended penal substitution atonement theory. They would much rather have God be in control of this violent, tortuous, inhumane situation than admit that God does not have power in the face of horrific violence. And when people look at Jesus Christ dying on the cross, they take comfort in the fact that God wanted this, even though it says that God is extremely angry, because at least God then is in control. This is really important to understand when we look at what we are facing in 2020 today. We are facing a global pandemic the likes of which the world has never seen. And because of this pandemic, 
you can imagine there are lots of Christians in America who are going around telling the world that we are in the end times. They are insisting that we look at the prophecies that are telling us that all of this suffering that we are enduring in this moment was ordained by God and that God told us that stuff like this was going to happen before God returned. Now, if you are like me, these prophecies are annoying, they are cruel, and they do not help the situation at all. But understand where they are coming from. Prophecies about the virus are appealing to Christians today because they tell those Christians that God is in control. And this idea that God is sending the virus or allowing the virus to happen before God returns speaks to a God who is ultimately cruel and violent, but ultimately it speaks to a God who is in power and in control. And Christians in America today would rather worship a powerful God than a loving God. And these prophecies, while they are helpful to some, are ultimately damaging because these prophecies about the virus are ultimately an attempt to justify all of the pain that we are suffering. And when we look at the cross and this tortuous device and this terrible scene within scripture, all of the theories of atonement that I've heard about are attempts to justify the horrific suffering of the cross. My brothers, my sisters, my friends, whenever Christians attempt to justify suffering, we end up with faith in a cruel and angry God. I have found that whenever someone can justify another human being's suffering, they end up testifying about the anger of God. This was brought to light beautifully by one of America's greatest theologians, a man named James Cone, who recently passed away in 2018. In his masterwork, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, James Cone talks about what the cross represented and what it did not represent. In this book, James Cone compares the cross that Jesus suffered from to the suffering that African Americans endured from the lynching tree in American history. Thousands of African Americans were murdered by white supremacists who rather than get tied up in the legal system, took the law into their own hands and acted as judge, jury, and executioner without any oversight and hung black bodies from lynching trees across America. Now compounding this sin was the fact that elected officials who had the power to do something about illegal lynchings continued to turn a blind eye for over a century. And when we look at this massive amount of death at the hand of white supremacists, there's this question that arises as we look at these beautiful people who were murdered, and we ask, why did they have to die this way? And the answer is, they didn't have to die this way. White supremacists murdered them this way. And when we try to get God involved and try to talk about where was God in the midst of all of this, it can get really complicated if we can answer that question. 
And here's James Cone, who will know more about theology than I can ever hope to know. And in this book, he writes these words, If God loves black people, then why then do we suffer so much? That was my question as a child, and that is still my question today. In other words, you cannot justify suffering without having a cruel God. If you could justify the suffering that people of color have experienced in America, you would ultimately end up with a God who is angry and racist. And while the cross didn't change much, according to John Dunn Scottis and James Cone, what we can find in the cross is not an answer to our questions. In fact, it's the absence of answers to our questions. But instead, what we can find is solidarity in powerlessness. James Cone writes that every time a white mob lynched a black person, they also lynched Jesus. The lynching tree is the cross in America. And I think the reason we ask this question, why did Jesus have to die this way, is because we have a sense that God shouldn't be on the cross, right? But I think that's ultimately the testament of the gospel. God is where God should not be. And while we love to celebrate the powerful nature of God, there are moments where God appears to be powerless. And while some would say, oh, a God that's powerless is worthless, I, I believe that God is with us in the powerless moments that we experience. Because what the story of the cross ultimately testifies to is that God suffers with us. This isn't an answer. This doesn't justify the suffering that Jesus Christ endured. But what it does tell us is that God is not indifferent to our suffering. But when we feel pain or when we go through uncertainties or there is racial injustice, God is not on the side of the person enacting the racial injustice. But instead, God is among those who suffers. God suffers with us. I wish I would have known this several years ago before I went to college. Because many of you know that one of my best friends in college, uh, a man named Tyler, is an atheist. And the problem with Tyler is that he's much smarter than I am and will always be smarter than I can ever hope to be. And Tyler was my first friend that didn't believe in God. And, you know, we went back and forth. And the number one reason that he couldn't believe in God was because there was so much suffering in the world. Now, I remember in my early 20s talking to Tyler about how God could allow so much suffering and still be in control and be considered a God of love. And as I look back at that now, what I was doing was I was attempting to justify suffering which is a task that will always lead us to believing in an angry and a cruel God. What I wish I would have known back then is that God doesn't provide answers for suffering. Instead, God suffers with us. And so when Tyler brings up the fact that he has a hard time believing in a God who loves when there is so much suffering, I can respond and I can say, me too, Tyler. I feel the same way. 
but I believe that God suffers with us. So God asks me not to try to justify suffering, but ultimately to go to where suffering is and be compassion and love and healing as much as I can be when there is pain. Not only that, but when I am suffering myself, when people come to me and offer healing and compassion and help, that I may be able to accept their solidarity, their companionship in the midst of uncertainty. The cross teaches us that God suffers with us. The Latin word compassio is where we get the English word compassion from. And compassio literally translates to suffer alongside. We are compassionate human beings whenever we suffer alongside those who are hurting. I believe the same is for God. And when God suffers alongside us, God is ultimately a being and a God of compassion. And in the midst of this virus, the more that we can suffer alongside those who are hurting, the closer we will be to God. Because at the heart of this gospel message is a life and an incarnation of God coming into being of Jesus Christ. And this story of the crucifixion reminds us that when we feel abandoned by God, when we give up our faith, when we shake our fists toward the heaven and say, God, why have you screwed us? It is at that moment that we look to our side and see Jesus Christ asking the same question. And we realize that God suffers with us. My brothers and sisters, may you have eyes to see and ears to hear that God is with us and God is as close to us as our next breath. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. <laughs>